The sermon text for today is Genesis chapter 19. We're going to look at the whole chapter. It's a lot for us to read. And then we will turn to the New Testament, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, we are told. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men At the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they were themselves, so they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest this disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? and my life will be saved. He said, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, And all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. She became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. 
So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lie down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and named his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Let us go now to the New Testament reading, 2 Peter 2, 4-10. There Peter writes to the Christians, saying, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for As that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Behold, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord help us now in the preaching of the word to understand it and to apply it in our day and age. Brothers and sisters, I have emphasized in the previous two sermons that the events recorded for us in Genesis chapters 18 and 19 have a prototypical character to them. And by that I mean, not only were these real events that actually happened in the days of Abraham, they also taught Abraham, his descendants, yes, even you and me, something about what would happen in the world again and again, culminating in the consummation of all things at the return of Christ. These are real events, but they are prototypical events, just as a prototype of a car shows what the actual car will look like once it is produced. So too many of the historical events recorded in the Bible functioned as prototypes of events yet to come. They were real events, but they were also events that revealed something about the plans and purposes of God. They were historical events that served to also reveal. And as I have said, these events, they did really happen. Abraham was truly set apart in the world as unique and holy. Abraham did intercede on behalf of Sodom. This we heard last week. 
The Lord was faithful to preserve His chosen ones who lived in the midst of Sodom. And indeed, the Lord did pour out His wrath upon that place. These events really happened, but these events were not ordinary events. They also revealed something. They showed something of God's plan for the future. They established a pattern that would be repeated. What do the events of Genesis 18 and 19 teach us about God's plan? Let me State the matter very succinctly. One, the Lord by His grace will always have a people that belong to Him in the world. This is revealed to us in the call and the setting apart of Abraham. Two, those who belong to Him are to live in obedience to the Lord as they intercede for the nations. Do you remember that Abraham was set apart to walk before the Lord in holiness and he had a particular responsibility to intercede on behalf of the nations. He was blessed to be a blessing. Three, The Lord will be faithful to preserve His people even as they live in the midst of wickedness. This we see in this episode concerning Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. And four, the Lord will certainly judge. He is indeed a God of mercy and grace, but He is also holy, righteous, and just. He will certainly punish sin. And here in this event where we witness the outpouring of God's wrath upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, we see that He will certainly punish sin but He is able to preserve His people in the midst of it. This is what we learn from this entire section, section, Genesis 18 and 19. They are real historical events, but they have a prototypical character to them. In Genesis 19, which is our sermon text for today, we see the last two of these principles portrayed. I have just listed four principles for you. The last two are here portrayed. And notice three things about this chapter. One, the Lord was faithful to preserve compromising Lot. Two, the Lord judged the wickedness of Sodom. And three, in these events, the Lord did answer the prayer of Abraham. First, let us consider that the Lord was faithful to preserve compromising Lot. The Lord was faithful to preserve him. How are we to think about this man, Lot? How are we to think of him? Did he have true faith? Was he righteous? Or is is he to be numbered amongst the non-believing and unfaithful of the world? He's kind of a mixed bag, isn't he? It's kind of hard to know how to think of Lot. Did he have true faith? Was he righteous? Or is he to be numbered amongst the world? Well, Ultimately, we must confess that Lot was a righteous man. He had the faith of Abraham, and he was justified by faith, just as Abraham was. How do we know this? Well, there are for two reasons. One, the New Testament directly says that he was a righteous man. That's helpful, isn't it? Here is how you are to think of Lot. He was a righteous man, a godly man. The New Testament says so, and that statement is found in that Second Peter 2 passage that was read at the very beginning of this sermon. In verse 7 we read, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Here's the point that Peter is making if we consider the events there of Genesis chapter 19. Here's what we learn. God is able to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the last day, to the day of judgment, while also rescuing the godly from trials. So, again, did you hear the way that Peter interpreted the events surrounding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? When he looked back upon that story, that narrative, he saw what I have already said. I got it from him and not he from me. 
I will admit it, that these events were prototypical. They demonstrated that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under, under punishment until the day of, the, of judgment. And what did Peter have to say about Lot? How did he view Lot? The text explicitly says that Lot was righteous and godly. Evidently, his soul was tormented by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard that were going on around him. How should we view Lot? We are to view him as a righteous man, for the New Testament describes him as such. But the narrative of Genesis 19 also points in that direction, doesn't it? It also points in that direction. Did you notice that Lot showed the two visitors, who were really angels, we know that, he didn't at first. He showed them hospitality, in much the same way that Abraham showed hospitality to three when they visited him. And so he, he has this in common with Abraham. The world around him is not hospitable, but he was hospitable to these visitors. Notice that he pleaded with the men to stay with him. He prepared a feast for them, much like Abraham did. He was clearly concerned for their well-being. He is portrayed, therefore, as a good and hospitable man, just like Abraham. And we should not forget that the Lord did rescue Lot before destroying Sodom. This demonstrates that Lot belonged to the Lord. Clearly, Lot was a righteous man who lived amongst wicked men. Now, if it is true that Lot was a righteous man of faith, why then do I call him compromising Lot? Why do I call him that? Well, I describe him in this way because the narrative of Genesis also points in that direction. He seems to have compromised. He seems to have drifted away a bit from a sincere and single-hearted devotion to the Lord. He seems to have drifted away from the covenant which God had transacted with Abraham. Did Lot belong to the Lord? Yes, we must say that he did. But it also appears that the world had a bit of a hold on Lot, and the results were disastrous. Do you remember how Lot moved away from Abraham as recorded in Genesis chapter 13? It was noted then that Lot seemed to lose, lose interest in being closely allied with Abraham, who was blessed of God. He also seemed to be impressed with the affluence of Sodom, that narrative concluded with these ominous words, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. That was the land of promise, remember. While Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That is Genesis 13, 12 through 13. And so, that whole narrative of Lot moving away from Abraham concluded with those ominous words. It seems that Lot was beginning to drift away. He was drifting away from Abraham. He was drifting away from the blessings of the covenant which the Lord had transacted with Abraham. Let us not forget also that Lot had to be rescued after he was captured by those strong and wicked kings. He was carried away with the world, as it were. And Abraham had to come and to get him and to pull him out. Uh, he was entangled with and swallowed up by the world, it seems. That's where the narrative of Genesis points. And notice a few things about the narrative of Genesis 19. Lot was no longer living in tents near Sodom. That's the last thing we heard about him in Genesis 13. Where is he now in Genesis 19? He's sitting in the city gate, verse 1. He had assimilated, it seems, into 
uh, that culture. He was respected to some degree in that place. He was an elder sitting in the middle of the city at the, the city gates. Notice also how when the men of Sodom pressed Lot to hand over his guests, he offered his virgin daughters to them instead. Verse 8, didn't that strike you as an odd thing for a father to do when we read that narrative? What is this, Lot, that you are willing to do? Of course, he was concerned to protect his visitors. He was being hospitable to them, and that was a big deal to him and to others in that day. I understand that. But to offer up your daughters to these men seemed like a strange thing to do. Consider also that when Lot spoke to his sons-in-law concerning the looming judgment, his sons-in-law did not take him seriously. Verse 14, why is that? Why did they not take Lot seriously? Maybe he wasn't a serious man to them from the outset. And so they blew him off. They brushed him to the side. In verse 16, we are told that Lot lingered in Sodom when he was urged to leave. Why did he linger there in that place? He was being urged to leave by these visitors. Judgment was looming. It was at the door. And yet there he takes his time The angels had to drag him out of the city. They seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city, Genesis 19, 16. Notice also that Lot's wife looked back. Why did she look back? She loved that place. She loved that place. And what are we to say of the perverse thing that Lot's daughters did? in seeking to preserve their father's line, verses 38, 30 through 38. What are we to say of that? It, the narrative indicates that though Lot was a righteous man, and though he was disgusted at what he saw going on around him, he seemed to, to compromise. He seemed to be, to a certain degree, in love with that place, not wanting to leave it. He lingered there, and look at what happened to his wife and to his daughters. They seem to have been greatly influenced by that perverse culture. And so at the end of the day, I do not doubt that Lot had the faith of Abraham. I'm sure that he was a righteous man, that he was godly in comparison to the world around him. The scriptures clearly say that he was. But the narrative of Genesis also strongly suggests that Lot was somehow entangled with the world. The narrative also seems to highlight all of the trouble and heartache that came along with his compromising. Friends, I I think you realize this, that this can happen to any of God's people if they are not diligent to tend to the garden of their souls. How easy it is for weeds to sprout up and to choke out the vitality of our faith. Covetousness, a, a love for the world, is like a cancer to the soul. Love for the world will inevitably cause our love for God and for the things of God to grow cold. This is why the scriptures constantly warn against these things. Would you hear these words from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-10, through 10, where we hear, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, 
into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. I wonder if Lot was not somewhat covetous. If he did not look out upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he saw their affluence, he saw their comfort, he said, I want that. And so he was willing to wander away from Abraham, the sojourner who lived in tents. Before you know it, there he is with a place of his own, right in the middle of Sodom, sitting at the city gates. We have to beware of these things as well, brothers and sisters, that we are not entranced by the world, enraptured with the affluence of the world, caught up with worldly things. It's possible for even those who belong to God to begin to compromise in this way. And when they compromise in this way, when we wander away from the faith, we find that we in fact pierce ourselves through with many pains. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. story of the destruction of of Sodom and Gomorrah and the preservation of righteous Lot illustrates these truths, doesn't it? The world is indeed passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Lastly, the exhortation of Hebrews 3, 12-14 seems appropriate here. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Though Lot was compromising, he did truly belong to the Lord. And so the Lord preserved him. The Lord always preserves those who belong to him. You and I have the responsibility to persevere in the faith, but He will always preserve His people. You can be sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see that though Lot was compromising, though he was wandering away from the faith, and though he had pierced himself through with many pains, the Lord preserved him. He actually dragged him out of that city, didn't He? Because He was showing mercy to him. At that time, the mercy of God shown to his people is vividly portrayed in this episode. Lot, having been thoroughly warned of the judgment to come, he lingered in that city. And sometimes we linger in our sin, don't we? Sometimes we wallow in the mire, having grown comfortable and complacent with the filth. But do you see that the Lord was merciful to Lot? Quite literally, he pulled him out of that wicked place by the messengers. The men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to them, and they brought him out and set him outside of the city. Lot would have perished if left to himself. He would have perished if left to himself. But by the grace of God, he was spared. This is true of you and me if we are in Christ Jesus. If left to ourselves, we would surely perish. Left to ourselves, we would Also, think little of the warnings of God. We too would linger in our sin. But God, being rich in mercy, 
Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That familiar passage is Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9. And so don't you see, brothers and sisters, how the Lord preserved compromising Lot? And don't you see how He shows the same kindness to you and me if we are in Christ Jesus? He is faithful to give His elect the gift of faith, and He is also faithful to preserve them to the end. Thanks be to God. The second point of today's sermon is this. We must give attention to the fact that the Lord judged the wickedness of Sodom. The Lord judged the wickedness of Sodom. It is true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, isn't it? Romans 3.23 says so. But it is also true that some people and peoples are more wicked than others. This is certainly true of the people of Sodom. This was true of them Remember what was said of them in Genesis 13, 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And remember what the Lord said of them in Genesis 18, 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. The narrative of Genesis 19 clarifies the nature and extent of their sin. As of Genesis 18, we're left wondering, well, what are these people doing that is so wicked that it deserves the immediate outpouring of God's wrath? Well, Genesis 19 clarifies the nature and the extent of their sin. Notice a few things. First of all, notice how eager and insistent Lot was to have these two visitors stay with him and not in the city square as they had planned. This clues us in to the fact that something is not right in this place. Sure, Lot was hospitable. I don't, do not doubt that. But he also knew what would happen to them if they slept out in the open. And notice also that his plan was to send the two on their way first thing in the morning. If Lot were speaking more directly to these visitors uh, who, who came along his way, he would have said something like this, There is no way I am going to let you sleep out in the open square tonight. You have no idea what this men, the men in this town will do to you. Stay at my house, I insist upon it, and then you are leaving at first light. You must get out of this place. So great was the wickedness in Sodom that the men of the city, each one, young and old, surrounded Lot's house at night. They demanded to have the men so that they might know them. And clearly the meaning is that they desired to know them sexually. And after Lot tried to reason with them and begged them not to do such a wicked thing, they pressed even harder and said, This fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge? Who are you, Lot, to be judge over us, to tell us the difference between right and wrong? And then they threatened him, saying, Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they drew near even to the point of breaking down the door. Genesis 19.9 It is clear then that the men of Sodom were sexually perverse. They practiced homosexuality. 
In fact, it was even worse than that. They were violent men who forced themselves upon others. And so now we better understand what the Lord meant when He told Abraham that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. We were left with the question, who is crying out to God concerning this place? What are they saying to Him? What is their complaint? Well, it is clear now what their complaint was. These were brutal and oppressive men. And who knows how many victims had cried out to God for justice prior to the day when the Lord poured out His wrath. There were many victims to these men who lived in Sodom. Homosexuality is sin. Scriptures are very clear concerning this. It is a perversion of God's design. But rape, either of the hetero or homosexual kind, is a very grave sin, for it involves a victim, doesn't it? So great was the sin of Sodom, so widespread was the sin of homosexuality, and so common the grave sin of homosexual rape, that the Lord determined to make an end of that people altogether. And this He did. Verse 23, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And we should remember what Peter said concerning this event. He said, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. This event really happened But it happened in part to serve as an example. When the Lord judged Sodom in this way, He demonstrated what will happen to the ungodly at the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, as you know very well, it is considered hateful to say things like homosexuality is sin in our day. But it is the view of the Christian that homosexual behavior is, in fact, sinful behavior. We believe this because the scriptures so clearly teach it. We do not hate the homosexual. In fact, we care enough for them to say that their behavior is sinful, as unpopular as that remark might be. And we would say the same thing concerning many other sins, wouldn't we? The sin of drunkenness, the sin of thievery, adultery, and the like. It is important to call these behaviors sinful because these behaviors are to be turned from as one turns to Christ to follow after Him. And indeed, that is our desire, to see men and women turn from their sins, to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. When we call sin, sin, be it the sin of homosexuality or any other, we do so in love and with much humility. We do so in love because we care for the person committing the sin. We do so in humility because we realize that we are no better by nature. Were it not for the grace of God, we too would be caught in sin and under God's just condemnation. We call sin, sin, and urge men and women to turn from it into faith in Christ because we believe what the Apostle Paul has said, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, no adult, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's the clear teaching of Scripture. 
If this is you, if you are these things, habitually practicing these sins, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. To put it in plain speech, you're not going to be in heaven at the end of time, but rather in hell. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. If you refuse to turn from these things, if this is you, if you habitually practice these things and remain unrepentant, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then notice what the Apostle adds, these wonderful words. He's speaking to Christians living in Corinth, right? He says, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. This is what you used to be prior to faith in Christ, prior to repentance. And such were some of you. You were at that time sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, revelers, swindlers, and the like. That that was you prior to turning from your sin to faith in Christ. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Are you practicing homosexuality? Are you a drunkard? Are you an adulterer? Are you greedy? And this is what must be said to you out of love and in humility. I must say to you, turn from these sins and run to Christ for the forgiveness of sins so that these words would apply to you instead. Instead of the word of condemnation, how wonderful it would be for you to hear these words. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I'll ask you this also. Are you a professing Christian who is unwilling to say homosexuality is sin? There are an increasing number of those in our day. I have two questions for you. One, are you really as loving as you claim to be? You approve of what the Scriptures call sin in the name of love, but does this not demonstrate that you have neither love for God, for you disregard His Word, nor love for man, for you are more concerned with your own well-being than for the eternal destiny of those who are living in rebellion? Are you really loving, then, is the question I ask. I wonder if you do not love yourself supremely. Are you not afraid that the world might look at you and say what they said to Lot, They told him to stand back, remember. And then they began to question him, saying, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Many are afraid to call sin sin in our day because they are afraid of what it will cost them. Stated differently, they love themselves more than God or neighbor. And so I do ask the professing Christian who refuses to call sin sin, Are you really loving as you claim to be? Two, I would ask this. If the professing Christian responds saying, but I simply do not believe that it is sin, then I ask, why do you call yourself a Christian? To be a Christian is to believe that God's word is true. And the scriptures are very clear on this matter, friends. I could have cited so many texts that demonstrate that homosexuality is indeed sin, according to the scriptures. And if you do not believe the scriptures, then you are not of the Christian religion. You probably call yourself a liberal or a progressive Christian. But a close look at your belief system will reveal that yours is a different religion altogether. Your God is different from the God of scripture. Your authority is clearly different. It is not the scriptures, but something else. Your doctrine of salvation is different. And it is no wonder then that your morality is different too. 
Friends, the Lord judged the wickedness of Sodom. He made an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if you are living in sin, sin of any kind, I do plead with you to turn from it and to look to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. My prayer is that you would indeed be washed, cleansed by the blood of Christ, sanctified, that means set apart unto Him, made holy, set apart for His service, and justified, having had your sins forgiven, being declared not guilty in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And this I say in love and with much humility, admitting that by nature I am no better than you. The third and final point of the sermon today is that the Lord did in fact answer the prayer of Abraham. Do you remember his prayer? Do you remember how he stood there with the Lord after the two went down into Sodom, into that region, and he interceded for Sodom? He asked the Lord to spare the place, and he appealed to God's righteousness, didn't he? Genesis 18, 24, he said, Lord, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. The Lord agreed with Lot, didn't He? He actually agreed with Lot, saying, you know what, if there are 50 down in that sea, I'll spare the whole place. I'll spare the whole place. And then there, the text progresses. Abraham obviously senses that there are not really 50 in the place. And so he asks again, and then and again and again, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And the Lord agrees. If there are only 10, I'll spare the whole place for the sake of the 10. But what do we see here in this passage? Only four were redeemed from Sodom before the Lord poured out His wrath. And one could argue that only one of those four were truly righteous. The Lord did answer Abraham's prayer, didn't He? But not in the way that he expected. I think Abraham learned a lesson that day, that this city, there were very, very, very few righteous living within it. And what did the Lord do except pull the righteous out prior to pouring out His wrath? He did answer Abraham's prayer, though. And I think we do here learn something about intercessory prayer. We are to intercede for others, aren't we? We're to pray for others. We're to pray for the nations. We're to pray that the Lord would have mercy upon those who are living in wickedness and who are unrighteous. We learn something about inter intercessory prayer here. One, we are invited to intercede just as Abraham did. We should do it. We must pray. Two, when we intercede, we should do so understanding that the Lord's plans and purposes might very well be different from our own. And this is why we should pray, saying, If it is your will, Lord, would you do such and such? Three, when we pray, the Lord often teaches us something in the process. We learn to wait upon Him. We learn something of His character. We learn that His ways are always just. We should have the posture of Abraham when we pray, therefore. Remember that he bowed himself to the earth when he met the Lord. He stood still before he spoke to the Lord. And when he did speak, he spoke humbly to the Lord and with reverence. And after having prayed, we learn that he went away in peace to wait upon the answer to his prayer. Abraham interceded, and I think he learned something in the process. Verse 27, And Abraham went, early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. I think he wanted to see what the result was. 
He had that encounter with the Lord the night before. He interceded on the behalf of Sodom. And when he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, he looked and behold, smoke, the smoke of the land went up like a smoking, like the smoke of a furnace. Can, can you visualize it? Smoke of a furnace. We don't see furnaces. But just dark, black, probably smoke. I don't know what color it was, but billowing, thick smoke going up from that place. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. What was the result of Abraham's prayer, therefore? Except that Lot was rescued. Lot was rescued out of that place before it was overthrown. Brothers and sisters, I have made some brief points of application uh, throughout this uh, sermon today. But I would urge you to settle down and to think more deeply upon this text on this Lord's Day and throughout the remainder of this week. Certainly, there is a great deal of application to be made to our lives today individually and also to our culture from what Genesis chapter 19 teaches us. Indeed, the Lord is faithful to preserve His elect in the midst of wickedness. He will judge. He will judge at the end of the, of the age. And He will answer our prayers in between now and then. His ways are not always our ways. So we are to come before Him humbly, but we certainly are to intercede. It is a part of what the Lord has called us to if we are in Christ Jesus. Let us bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank You for this passage, though it is a difficult one, though it is discouraging. It is an important text, and it is for our benefit. As we look at Genesis chapter 19, we see that an example is set before us here of your ability, your commitment to preserve your people while the unrighteous are kept until the day of judgment. We thank you for this picture, as unpleasant as it is, for we do not rejoice in the death of the wicked, but we thank you for it, for it helps us to know how we are to live in this world until you return. God, I pray that you would give the gift of faith to all who hear. I pray for those who are caught in sin that you would give the gift of faith and repentance. God, we thank you that you are a merciful God and that you have provided a Savior for us so that our sins might be washed away, that we might be sanctified and justified in Christ Jesus. Father, your word has been proclaimed. We pray that your spirit would act upon the souls of men and women who hear. It's in the name of Christ that we say these things, and all of God's people say,